Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Spencer Thompson, CEO and co-founder of Prelude Security, a continuous security testing platform that's raised over $30 million in funding. Spencer, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I'm a kind of strange, odd case of being a security executive. So a little bit about me is I grew up in Niagara Falls on the Canadian side, so very close to Buffalo. Grew up in a very heavy manufacturing town, which influenced a lot of how I thought about careers in general. And the reason why that's relevant is after high school, roughly the year after high school, I actually didn't end up going to college, read you know, roughly 200 books on neuroscience and psychology and parenting and economics and all sorts of strange things, became obsessed with career development, and ended up starting a company called So Can You when I was 21, it was back in 2012. And that company was designed to help organizations and individuals find their ideal careers. I think about a career test that you've taken in high school or college. Think about a modern one that was designed in 2012, not, not in the 1950s. So, you know, recommendation algorithms, mobile first, et cetera. Ran that company for roughly nine or 10 years, exited the company in 2021, and then uh, started Prelude, which the original version of Prelude was actually a school. It was a cybersecurity training school in New Hampshire and in Seattle, and then eventually pivoted to become what it is today. Let's talk a little bit about that first startup. So what did you learn from that experience? Or what was one big takeaway that you learned from that experience? Yeah, in some ways, I had no business running the startup. Like, So I started the company with no real technical background, no real business background. I had this absolute obsession with solving this problem. The problem was really bored out of an experience that I had had in high school, which was, you know, we'll call it the vast preponderance of the individuals that I knew in my high school graduating class all ended up studying the same thing at the same universities, which is roughly health, healthcare, health sciences in the same universities. And I didn't really know why. And so did a bunch of digging into basically how they were given that advice. And the very short answer was guidance counselors had come back from conferences, had said that there was a lot of money in pharmaceutical sales, whether that's true or not, it's a different conversation. And roughly, I would say, you know, north of 50% of kind of the parents of the kids in the graduating class worked in some version of manufacturing. So where I grew up was like very heavy GM, Ford, subsidiary type employment, including my dad. And so I think because of how homogenous the careers of the parents were, it ended up kind of trickling down into how the kids chose careers. And so I started it really based on that belief that there was a better way of figuring out, not dogmatic, but actually based on their individual kind of attributes. But I really had no business starting a business. And so the hard part was it was a struggle to raise capital. It was a struggle to build the first version of the product. It was a struggle to actually figure out a business model. I would argue that we actually never really figured that out. We figured out a data model, a growth model. Uh, we never really reached escape velocity on the business side. You know, over the life cycle of the business, we ended up raising $11 million. So we ended up raising real amounts of capital and exiting the business, which was fine. I mean, for the people involved, it was, it was fine, but it was a real struggle the entire time. And so I think the big lesson for me was in doing kind of the, the business that I'm doing right now, a lot of the kind of most fundamental thinking and call it the obsession with excellence across every dimension of the business was just not there in the first company. I just didn't know. I didn't know that you had to have this absolute kind of 
we'll call it depth of thinking on every single dimension from business model to hiring to, you know, branding and messaging, everything else. And so it was basically, it was a very deep learning experience. I'm immensely grateful at all the people that decided to go on the journey because in some ways, why would they believe some 21 year old and give them money and come, come work for a person like that? But yeah, there's lots of lessons. Were you happy with the exit? Do you wish now that you would have sold it for more or held on to the company and kept growing it? Or are you content and happy with how it all ended? It's such a, I mean, it's such a hard question because if you think about like the timing and everything else, I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I think arose because of the exit. I think the monetary value was, who knows if it was the actual call local maxima of the company at, at that time or not, but I think it was fair for where the company was in terms of the data generation. And it ended up kind of merging into one of the largest schools in America and kind of piecing together. So I think that was really good. There's lots of lessons learned on that too, but no, I wouldn't, I would not have gone back and changed the decision. I don't, I can, especially knowing what I know now. A few questions we'd like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, I'd like one weird answer to this, maybe in one normal answer to this, which the, I'll start with the normal answer. So the normal answer is probably Larry Ellison, which is maybe common, but maybe not, not that common. I think Larry for all of his many personality things that are associated with them. Like if you read software, I mean, you have a person who's just what hundredth percentile in terms of sales ability and hundredth percentile in terms of technical ability that has gone through how many reboots and restarts and redoing things himself of Oracle. And I mean, I think yesterday the billionaire, you know, Bloomberg billionaires ranking with you is at what $134 billion. Like I don't hear anybody ever talking about Oracle as a company they look up to. I don't ever hear anybody talking about Larry as a founder they really look up to. And yet you have, it's this unbelievable foundational, almost plumbing infrastructure level success story that I think is really interesting. So that's the more common one. This person is not really a founder, but you're asking what makes me tick. The person that I would say I admire that has founder-like characteristics is a guy named Norman Borlaug, which may be familiar onto layer to the audience, but Norman Borlaug was... Basically, he won a Nobel Prize in 1970 for he invented basically a new strain of wheat starting in Mexico and then it propagated out across the world that basically reduced the net estimates are that a billion people did not go hungry or did not starve as a result of the technology he invented for, you know, call it increasing the production of wheat. And so he was, you know, did a lot of research in Iowa. There's a very famous book called The Man Who Fed the World based on him. And I think the innovation that comes out of that. And the net effect on human beings, which I think will relate to a bunch of the thematic elements of what I talk about, was super inspiring. So those are two examples. Nice. I'm a big fan of Larry Ellison as well. And I wonder if he's not as popular because he never really like bended his knee. He doesn't really like kiss journalists' ass. He really just does his own thing. And I think a lot of the other billionaires, people who have that level of success, to some extent, they do kind of cave and they do kind of conform, but he really hasn't. So I, I would wonder if that's maybe the reason why. I think that's probably right. I also think like if you think about most founders and how they want to design a company from stage zero, they're not trying to emulate Oracle. Oracle is if you if you were to, you know, give my people saying and if you give somebody truth serum, you can they actually have to tell the truth and you kind of blindfold them and you say, Hey, you know, what's the word association with Oracle? And you might get back, you know, old, very salesy, you know, very corporate, et cetera. And so I think you just get very few, we'll call it modern, whether it's journalists or founders or anything else, aspiring to build the level of infrastructure and success and frankly, enterprise sales success that they, they've had. Even the AB test running like Salesforce, which obviously emulated in some ways out of Oracle. Larry wrote the first check, or Benny I've worked at, at Oracle for a long time. Most people are very familiar with the M&A strategy of Salesforce success of how they've actually built the thing. Very few people actually 
know or care about what's going on with Oracle's cloud right now. It's just not a, I don't know, it's just not a sexy company to emulate. And I think that's part of it too, is it's just not something that's top of mind for most, you know, at least young type founders. You mentioned software there, and I read that a while back. I also recently read the book, The Difference Between God and Larry Ellison. God and Larry Ellison. Have you read that? I have read that. There's a reason I caveated my answer by saying personality stuff aside. But the, 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 the question is around founder in particular. It, it wasn't around kind of moral humanness. It was around founder. And I think, you know, I think most people tend to revert back to the Elons and the Steve Jobs and the cetera of the world because of the inspiration that comes from the output. And they, there's a lot of books written about that. I think, again, like there's a lot of synthesis and output created from Larry in sort of a very different way. Yeah, totally agree. Now, we talked about books there a little bit, but let's dive deeper into some other books. So we took this from Ryan Holiday. Uh, he calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind? Yeah, again, I probably have one common, one uncommon answer to this. So the common answer to this is, I know this is like a cliche, but I still think the Caro books, you know, you can talk about the power broker individually. There's a great new documentary that just came out that probably nobody ever saw, called Culture in Every Page, that goes into the kind of working process of Bob Caro and Bob Gottleg, who just died, who is his editor. And so the Lyndon Johnson books in particular, but then obviously the power broker, the dynamic of power in American history 12th to the 20th century through that prism, I just don't think is the literal pinnacle of nonfiction writing. And is influ- I'm happy to talk about it, but has influenced me in ways around power dynamics and ideology in ways that other books have not. The one that's more, even more atypical is there's a bunch of books by him, E.O. Wilson. There's one about, you know, we'll call it the Man's Search for Meaning equivalent Although that's a phenomenal book we should talk about too. And so, you know, he's very famous for his work on ants, but in particular, his work on anthropology and individuals and how we actually find purpose and meaning have been very, very kind of critical to how I think about, you know, we'll call it philosophy, moral humanism in general, and, and a bunch of purpose things. So those are maybe polar opposites in some ways, ways they're related, but I think they're, they're both very inspirational. What was that first one? It's Power Broker, but it's not the Ro- Robert Moses story, right? It's a different one? It is. Yep. So Power Broker is Robert Moses and then the Lyndon Johnson ones. And then the E.O. Wilson one, the one that's primarily the one that I'm talking about is The Meaning of Human Existence. He's got a couple other books too. All right. So someone recommended that I read Power Broker. I bought it and it's huge. It's like, what, a thousand pages? How good is this book? Should I, should I dive in? This is a, a serious recommendation. Well, it's even it's even more than that. I think it's roughly seventeen hundred pages. A thousand of those pages were cut, so it's supposed to be twenty seven hundred pages. But the fun fact about Robert Carroll books is that there's roughly two point two x the number of words per page as a typical nonfiction book. So it's actually much more than that. <laughs> uh, and the the rumor is, and he's writing the fifth book about uh, Lyndon Johnson right now, that one single chapter is roughly six hundred pages. To give you a sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it is like for anybody who cares about shaping and shifting the world that we live in, I think it is maybe the default prerequisite to read. All right. If I end up spending 50, 60 hours of my time here and this book is bad, I'm going to send you an angry email. You can, you can send me any, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a bunch of other books too. It's almost a guarantee. Watch turn every page first. If you watch turn every page, I guarantee you'll be fired up to actually read, uh, read the book. All right, done. I'm sold. Let's switch gears here and let's dive deeper into the company. So we can think about this like the elevator pitch. What's the high level overview of what the company does? Sure. So the easiest way to describe this is through a scenario that exists basically every day in cybersecurity. And the scenario is, imagine that you work at a company that is public 
which is relevant because the SEC came out with some rulings last night that changed kind of disclosure forms around uh, public companies. Pretend for a second that you work on the security team in a public company. And one of your competitive companies, maybe sister organizations, competitive organizations, announces they've been cyber attacked. The question I always ask people is what happens that day? And something like the following typically happens, which is a board member is reading the Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg with their coffee in the morning. They read about the cyber attack and they forward an email to the CEO of the company and they basically write WTF. And that CEO takes that email, forwards it to the CISO or the CIO and writes what the heck, who then sends it to their security team, who ultimately ends up sending that email to CrowdStrike or Sentinel-1 or Microsoft Defender, large cybersecurity vendors. And they're all actually asking the exact same question, which is, hey, are we vulnerable to that thing happening to us? I believe it's the most primitive kind of consistent question across cybersecurity. What we do is we're designed to answer that question. It's basically all we do. And we allow you to answer that question by asking your system that question through the form of a safe cyber attack that we call a test. And we actually allow you to gather intelligence about your systems that tells you real, like basically in, in real time, whether you are susceptible to that thing happening to you or not. I have to talk about the details of that, but that is basically all we do. Where did this desire to start a cybersecurity company come from for you? So obviously your, your first company is very different from this field. Where did cybersecurity enter into your life? Yeah, so again, very emergent, very organic. So like I mentioned, I think earlier, start a school. That was the, the immediate connective tissue was a school for cybersecurity kind of workers. We'll call it very junior uh, SOC analysts, so kind of cybersecurity analysts. We had the school in New Hampshire and Seattle in 2019, 2020-ish. We talked about the kind of success of that. It ended up like working decently well. And actually COVID ended up killing that business because you can't have 50 you know, students sitting in a classroom in the middle of COVID. And so I had an early investor, pre-seed investor, who had introduced me to the organization he had worked at, which is a large kind of nonprofit defense contractor. And I ended up meeting somebody there who had eventually become my partner and CTO on this business. He had developed a piece of technology or helped develop a piece of technology at the organization and end up running the team that basically emulated adversarial behavior within networks. So if you think about like, hey, bad guy in Russia or China or North Korea performed a, an attack against the system, how do you emulate that behavior inside of your system to the most realistic version possible? They had built a bunch of that research internally. We decided to join forces, combine some of the education vision, some of you know that vision, actually build a company around it, launched the first version of that product you know, in late 2021. And you know, hard pivoted the company, ended up raising roughly thirty million dollars, like you mentioned, in just over a year. And uh, you know, have gone very, very deep on national security and, and you know, call it deep tech cybersecurity since then. Do you think you have an advantage as an outsider? You know, I work with a lot of cybersecurity companies, and you know, a lot of them. You know, one for example, he worked at Yahoo as a security analyst. Then he worked at Airbnb, and then uh, VC poached him and convinced him to quit his job. The other one was a CISO, and then he left and started a uh, cybersecurity vendor. So you're not coming from this space, but do you view that as an advantage being an outsider? I think if you ask most people this question, they would say it's probably still net negative because you know there's a lot of domain expertise. There's an enormous amount of, we'll call it, context-specific nomenclature. I guess I would answer this in a very specific way, which is I am unable to do what most cybersecurity experts do. Most cybersecurity experts develop a piece of technology typically coming out of uh, the military. Though in Israel, the you know, unit 8100 in the States is typically working at you know NSA or CIA or FBI or maybe working in one of these large organizations you mentioned. And think about what happens. They have an epiphany or they, they invent a piece of technology that starts at the government layer, the intelligence layer, and they say, hey, I want to commercialize this product. So when they go to an organization, 
they're able to act as a domain expert. I invented this or we invented this. It is something that you need. Here's why. And basically go and have that conversation. If I ever tried that to a CISO, they would throw me out of the room because they'd be like, you're not an expert. And so what do I have to do? I have to come in and ask questions around the kind of core deep problems and issues and come from a place of humility. And so I think from a product perspective, humility is a great unlock for actually synthesizing kind of where the market is today, where the market is going, which is kind of a macro thing, and ultimately where the true pain points live, because it's the only place, it's the only commit advantage I would possibly have. And so I think that has been a, whether it's good or bad, I think is up to the market to decide that. I think it is an interesting and unique perspective to bring that allows me to surround, you know, the whole company surrounded by a bunch of, you know, deep security experts. I end up being the person that maybe synthesizes a bunch of macro and micro factors and smushes them together. What's the market response look like so far? Can you talk about growth? Sure. I mean, so we've actually gone through two kind of evolutions. So we put out a product called uh, Prelude Operator. That was the first product, almost entirely free and open source, very focused on, we'll call it security engineers, purple teams, red teams allowing them to emulate adversarial behavior inside of their systems. The product that I described or the purpose that I described a second ago with kind of a board scenario, we designed a product called Prelude Detect. Detect is uh, designed to allow you to ask those questions of your systems and kind of, you mentioned in the intro, kind of continuous security testing. That category, which we believe is brand new, is a result of that product. And so there was a whole bunch of open source adoption that happened with you know, Prelude Operator. Detect has been in kind of GA for the last couple of months. We've been very you know, pleasantly surprised in some ways with the adoption, both from a PLG kind of bottom-up people trying it motion, but also from a, an actual enterprise you know, contracting perspective. So I would say, you know, we're still early. I will say from a, not to be so shadowy about this, you know, if you think about the industry that we're in a little bit deeper and think about testing of any sort, the vast preponderance of those tests come from red teams, purple teams, pen tests, like traditional pen tests. These are very manual, they're very expensive typically. I would guess that we have run in the last 30 days, I'll give you a sense, we've run hundreds of thousands of unique tests on top of, of production endpoints. Almost all red team, purple team slash pen test type tests are run on development or QA endpoints. They're not actually production endpoints. And so I think the scale is already getting to be I can't substantiate the claim of it being the largest. I'm not going to do that. But I think quite large relative to the newness. And I think the scale is starting to gather a whole bunch of data that is very fascinating by the efficacy of certain kinds of defenses and certain kinds of systems, which is ultimately the goal of the company. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned continuous security testing being an emerging category. Are there others yeah. who are starting to push this idea as well? So I think there are two, we'll call it bookend types of industries. So one is called breach and attack simulation. So if you go to Gartner, literally just search for breach and attack simulation, you'll see a set of companies that exist in that space. There are two kind of distinguishing factors that I think do not make those things continuous security testing type companies. The first is that those things, like I just mentioned, are running on development or QA environments for the most part. And if they are running on, on production environments, you think about production environments as every computer, laptop, server, cloud environment, container, OT system inside of a company. Sometimes you're talking about hundreds of thousands or millions of those things. There's never been a company that has figured out how to run at that level of scale. 
defensive companies have, right? If you think about CrowdStrike or Microsoft Defender, they're running on hundreds of thousands of endpoints, protecting those things. We have not had the equivalent version of that on the offensive, we'll call it the, the opposite side. And so I think that the breach attack simulation space, which started roughly in 2014, 2015, around the same time as a research paper came out, you know, has been very low scale for the most part. And frankly, the entire business model is to play gotcha against defenses. What happens when you pay for a pen test? What happens when you pay for a red team assessment? You get a printout of whatever, 50 pages of things and saying, you know, here's what's wrong with you. They give you the piece of paper and say, good luck. And so our attitude has been, you need to be able to work with and not against the defenses to make them better. So about a month ago, we announced an investment in a partnership with CrowdStrike. And the reason is to create a self-optimizing or self-healing loop with CrowdStrike. So when they actually you know, are defending a system, we run a test against it. If it, for some reason it's not caught, we actually work with them to self-improve. So those are two big differences that I think mean that the category smells like the same thing, but it's actually very different. The other bookend, by the way, is vulnerability management. So people that are familiar with the space, it's been around for a long time. Do you think about vulnerability scanners saying, hey, we're going to scan your systems and see what, what systems are potentially vulnerable. What we end up doing is not just saying it's potentially vulnerable. We're actually launching tests that are executing exploits and actually measuring defenses to say, here's where you're actually vulnerable to these systems. It's actually quite different as well. So this, you know, the lamest answer that a founder can give is nobody else is doing this. I think people will be doing this. I do think the category is emergent and new right now because I think we're basically trying to do something that neither of those groups are actually kind of focused on. And if we look at that tech stack, then do you view it as continuous security testing is eventually going to make, it looks like Gardner has it as BAS. <laughs> so uh, yeah, breach and attack simulation and vulnerability management or vulnerability remediation. Do you think it's going to replace those categories or does this sit on top of those or sit next to those? It all depends on how organizations want to use those tools. So I think that red teaming and purple teaming will still exist, especially you know with individuals working inside of organizations. Absolutely. Do I think they can use tools like this? Absolutely. Do I think it will be end up being its own independent category? Yes, I do. I don't think it'll be one of those two categories. Vulnerability management, by the way, is a very established industry. There's very large. There's, there's multiple multi-billion dollar public companies in the industry. Vast does not have that, just for the record. that's a, It's a much smaller industry and much more nascent. But I don't think it'll end up being in one of the... It'll, we won't subsume one of those buckets, is my prediction. It'll end up being its own category. How important do you think analyst relations will be to creating this category? Like for you, is it mission critical to get Gartner and Forrester to to buy in and, and believe that there needs to be a new category? Or do you believe that can be done without those types of firms? I think surrounding yourself with social proof, um, especially elite social proof that people actually believe you through proxy. It's the same reason why human beings decide to take shortcuts when they go to hire people. Oh, you worked at Harvard or you went to Harvard and you worked at Google and McKinsey, whatever. We take shortcuts all over our lives. It's a way of basically proxying trust. I think that what Gardner and Forrester, et cetera, do is they proxy trust as we're going to go and do a definitive look at whether these things are leaning in an industry, not leaning in an industry. I think eventually that's very important no matter what the category is, especially as you kind of get further down the curve of buyer in terms of adoption. I think it becomes much more important. I think in the early days, threading yourself with you know other proxies of trust, again, the CrowdStrike type announcement, maybe a few other announcements we've come out with, I would say is a necessary but efficient version of this. And I think that analyst relations will increasingly grow important for the company over time. We're still very new, we're still very early, but it would not surprise me if, again, if the thesis is right, that this is a category that becomes a much more important part of we'll call it the messaging and narrative campaign in the coming you know, 12 to 18 months. 
Let's talk a little bit about branding and, and marketing philosophy. So when I was going through your website, I noticed it's very different from a lot of the other cybersecurity vendors that I've had on the show. Normally you go to their sites and your, your heart starts racing and yeah, there, there's fear everywhere and it, it makes you feel uh, a sudden surge of anxiety. You've taken a very different approach with branding and I would have to assume that's been very intentional. Hyper intentional. Yeah. So the word that I would use for the industry is spooky, which maybe sums up what you're saying, which is a lot of websites are very black or very black and purple. And they say all sorts of spooky things, but all sorts of spooky things that happen. And then there's a lot of other, you know, shadowy type thing. And I understand why. And again, that, that emerges out of, I think, a lot of the, uh, you know, the background that I was describing earlier, I think kind of are, are reflected in that. We decided to take a, a different approach. So the two themes that we started with from a branding perspective when we built the website, the first was foundational science. Open source has always been a core part of what we do. So if you go back to operator, most of that is free and open source. A lot of what we do today is still free and open source. I'm happy to talk about kind of the differences there as well. We wanted to take a foundational, almost like you were looking at a science company. And so you were able to see, well, what made this thing true? Why is it the way that it is? Can I go and actually look for things that are not shrouded? For example, most enterprise companies, it's not just in security. It's very difficult to use the product. How do you use the product? You have to request a demo. How do you request a demo? You fill out a, a form with 18 things. And they won't let you see anything. I mean, it's actually hard to find demos on YouTube of most companies. If you go to Prelude, you know, what do you see? You can literally click get started. What do you do? You get started. You can install probes. You can run tests. You can see results. It's free up to 25 endpoints. There's nothing hidden. It's the same product, right? And so you have a, a very kind of consistent view of, of foundational science. The other half was national kind of intelligence and security. We, we wanted to kind of incorporate elements of the fact that we see ourselves much more as a national security company than maybe a pure cybersecurity company. And so... We try to blend those two things together. And a lot of the messaging also is extremely intentional around reflecting what we're trying to communicate to our customers. How have you seen the messaging evolve over the last, let's say, 12 or maybe six months? So when we first started, a lot of the messaging was very focused on adversary emulation, purple teaming, red teaming. The word attack showed up a lot. If you go to our website right now and read through the content, it you would be very hard-pressed to find the word attack sitting anywhere. It'd be very hard pressed to find the words red teaming or purple teaming. We've tried to be hyper intentional about the fact that continuous security testing is a new category. It's different. We believe it's a foundational market that will seem totally commonplace in five years, but maybe it doesn't today. And I think for us, we've seen this evolution maybe much more towards how customers tend to use language and what problems we're actually trying to solve for them, as opposed to maybe what is much more common in terms of even individual practitioners and their job titles. This is much more focused on maybe the connective tissue between the board level, the CISO, their security teams, the vendors. What is that common language of actually solving problems for them? I would say that there's been kind of a straight line of messaging improvement towards that. Something else I want to ask about, and I think you touched on it here a few minutes ago, it's about the SEC's news that came out today. Can you summarize that for us? Sure. So there's been a bunch that's gone on in the club. If you go back to like March of last year, there was a set of proposals made. The simplest version of what got announced by the SEC yesterday that I can give are public companies for a long time have been confused in some ways whether they were allowed to slash should slash are forced to disclose material breaches in their companies. If you think about some famous material breaches, like you might think about Target or Home Depot, maybe Uber, there's a couple others, of course, we can talk about too. There's lots of breaches that occur all the time at companies. They're not publicly, you know, they're not, they're not forced to disclose those things. So part one of this is now saying you have four days 
to publicly disclose that you haven't had a material. Now, the, the complexity in this is the word material. What counts as material versus immaterial? Different conversation. That's part one. Part two is you have to file a form every year, an annual form that basically shows that you are assessing and measuring potential material breaches or material kind of cybersecurity risk against the latest threats. So that a little bit dovetails with what we do, but that's kind of part two. And part three is you have to disclose whether you have a public board member that has cybersecurity expertise. Again, we can talk about what, what word expertise actually means in that sentence. But those three things, if you read Gary Gensler's kind of summary from yesterday, those three things are kind of the main core elements. Do you think CISO should have personal liability when there is a breach? I think Uber CISO was charged, went to trial, and I believe he, I don't know the outcome of that. What was the outcome of that? Do you know? He did. Uh, so I think he went to trial and actually I think he was successfully, we can look it up in particular maybe after and post the, the link, but I think that was, I think it was bad is a, is a short version. I actually ended up sending that to one of our team members this morning. We were having a conversation about something related to the SEC stuff. So I have no idea. I mean, I, I actually don't have a view on this. I'm nowhere near deep enough to be able to talk about. I actually think this is a, a moving target a little bit. I think that it is very challenging in a world of increasing complexity. We, you basically have two things happening. You have increasing velocity of number of tests and e- increasing complexity of type of or attacks and type of type of attacks. And so a lot of times, like there's a reason why incident response is such a large and important category. There's, there's a reason why Google bought Mandia. There's a reason why CrowdStrike had such a you know famous IR case of the DNC in 2016. It's because actually discovering these things is really freaking hard. And so like, I think there's so much nuance in some of these cases of did they actually know or not know? Were they withholding the information on purpose or not? I don't think I'm smart enough to know if you can apply kind of a broad brush approach that makes a lot of sense. Now, we talked about branding, but I want to go deeper there on just different marketing strategies that you're using to rise above the noise. So I was at Black Hat last year. I was at RSA this year, and I was walking around thinking every company is saying the exact same thing. <laughs> and it's very hard to you know, separate all these different companies. So what else yeah. are you doing to you know, separate yourself from all the different vendors that are out there? Yeah. So I think you mentioned a couple of the elements, which is just aesthetically is completely different. What I would argue is that there's the aesthetic angle of design. People call it the kind of like written nomenclature version of design in this case. I think aesthetically, people have a very similar reaction to what you say around the branding in general. This this looks nothing like a cybersecurity company. In fact, they probably are confused whether we actually do cybersecurity, which maybe has its own pros and cons. But I think people say this looks like a science site, which is exactly what we're going for. It's aesthetically pleasing. There's all sorts of weird art that we use that I personally love. Like we, we have a, a joke internally. We have this fish coming out of a rock. But we've ended up using uh, internally in a lot of our materials because we just think it's really interesting and funny and has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> so I think there's like, there's a bunch of, you know, we'll call it just aesthetic uniqueness and frankly, just an enormous amount of care that has gone into that to stand out. But the second thing I think you'll notice on our website is, do we use the word AI or do we use the letters AI at all anywhere on the website? I don't think so. Do we use machine learning anywhere? Whether we are or not, it's almost an independent question. I'm happy to talk about some of the things we're doing with that. But the buzzword bingo thing that does occur that people just get exhausted with. I mean, I was at RSA. We're going to Black Hat in a week and a half. Like, we work really hard to, again, use language that communicates the value that we're trying to give to the customer, to the individual who's looking at the thing, and frankly, respecting the fact that they've been bombarded by hundreds and hundreds of vendors basically mushing together. And we want the reaction to be those people are hyper clear about what they do. They're hyper clear about the value that they're giving to us. And they almost breath of fresh air that every conversation they have, no matter if it's our marketing person, our salesperson, our developers, me, that we're using language that hopefully uh, reciprocates 
you know, what struggles they have internally. I, I just don't think it's that much more complicated than that. Like, I think there's all these weird branding shortcuts people tend to employ. I think radical simplicity and obsession over what problem you're actually solving and the repeating that consistently is super important. I think people just don't do that. And they end up moving with the wind and saying, well, now we do like, how many people say they do Web3 anymore? I don't know. Like no one. Everybody was a Web3 expert, what, 12 months ago? And like magically that went away. Like like magically, like all of a sudden the tectonic plates shifted on branding in 12 months. Really? You just didn't believe what you were doing in the first place. It's not to criticize Web3 as a different conversation, but I think people tend to be way too quick to not actually think about foundational narrative and just whipsaw around depending on the flavor of the month. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think you'd see that on Twitter, right? All of these uh, these crypto bros that had crypto Web3 in their bios, and then they literally just switched it out. You know, as soon as ChatGPT became big, now all of a sudden they're AI experts, and that's all they want to talk about is AI. It's a, it's pretty fun. Yeah, totally experts, right? Like, absolutely. They they were not experts five minutes ago. It's the same, it's the same affliction that everybody's a national security expert on Ukraine and everybody's a our, COVID expert and everything else. It, and by the way, it's the nature again of the, of the complexity of the world that we live in. But the thing that you, that I try to think about, this is like a very famous Bezosism is like, hey, in 10 years, will people want faster or slower delivery? Oh, weird. They're going to want faster delivery. Do they want things to be cheaper or more expensive? It's obviously cheaper. All right. So like, it's not that much more complicated than just do those things. Turns out that doing those things are incredibly difficult, require a whole crap ton of infrastructure. You know, but like for us, when people want to have a faster reaction or a slower reaction to the latest threat that comes out, they want to have a faster reaction. They want more assurance or less assurance. They want more coverage or less. You just focus on those foundational things and you ignore everything else. I don't think it's that much harder than that. Yeah, they don't want AI enabled and they don't care if it was delivered via blockchain. They want their problem solved. I actually don't, I actually think it's the inverse. And like, I think that's so right. But I actually think it's like even more pronounced than that. Not the inverse, it's more pronounced than that, which is we are asking for the right to run things on production environments. The number one, number two, and number three thing that I obsess over personally is safety. If I say to them, don't worry about it, we've got a black box and the black box does kabuki theater magic between the time that you hit go and what ends up on the end point, they're never going to do it. They're not going to do it because you can't take that chance on top of production systems. Makes a lot of sense. Now let's talk a little bit about funding. So I've mentioned there that it's over 30 million you've raised so far, around 30 that you've raised so far. What have you learned about fundraising in this journey? Yeah, I mean, I've now had, again, two very different markets, one consumer career tech, one enterprise cybersecurity. I've raised, you know, whatever it is, $45 million in these organizations. Total transaction value is higher than that. Like we'll call it been involved in enough versions of transactions that I've been lucky enough to be, not that I'm an expert in this, but have done this enough times that some semblance of learned is a hard word because we raised part of the money in 2021, which you can put a hashtag in front of that if you want. And again, like it, it, I think there's a, a bunch of issues that come out of over kind of stimulus and an excess of capital. Honestly, the thing that I've learned and I think is quality of individual, quality of partner, quality of investor just matters the most. I, I tried to spend an inordinate amount of my time learning from spending time with our investors. We've been very lucky to have incredibly technical, incredibly deep investors that, and frankly, so I don't know, in some ways should not be spending as much time with me as they do. I, I'm very I'm grateful that they do that and the company in general. I just think quality is the thing that long-term, no matter what the ups and downs of markets are or whims or you know what's cool today or not cool today, 
depth of thinking, quality, first principles approach, the actual foundations of building real technology, building real product, building real business models and figuring those problems out. That's all that really matters. You don't want people that are like here for the next 18 months till things get really hard and then they just go away. That's like not useful to anybody. And there's a lot of that going on too. And so I think we've been very lucky to have We'll call it super high signal, super high quality people. And I will say the one maybe more tactical piece of advice that I learned the difference between the first and second company is the quality of investors that you have at the seed stage or even pre-seed stage is a proxy signal that basically keeps the rest of the stages either at an elite or a non-elite level. Right. So if you have like world-class investors at the pre-seed level with world-class docs or world-class board, that tends to persist. And actually, maybe, you know, you can talk about confirmation bias. It's like success begets success over time to some degree. I get that. But I think it also, the reputational currency that exudes because you have such world-class investors means that people are not able to do the things that maybe some lower tier investors will typically do if you don't have that currency. Because like, you know, are they going to show up around and insert, you know, Sequoia, Insight, whoever else, and give you a bunch of terms that, you know, those firms now know you're going to issue? Well, you have a weird reputational currency thing at risk at that point. So that provides some kind of, yield around the company, I think. And so I think quality of investor in the earliest days matters more than maybe founders give it credit for. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? That's a really good question. I would probably do even more customer discovery than we did in the early days. Again, like the, part of this is you have to map my individual learning curve too, right? It's like if I had 35 years of domain expertise and was 100th percentile at cybersecurity knowledge, it'd be maybe a little bit of a different answer, but you have the kind of curve of me learning as quickly as possible, intersecting with the market. But I think doing as many, we'll call it C-cell level, executive level, customer discovery calls as quickly as possible would have made us go faster on, I think, certain dimensions of products. And I think certain dimensions of like go to market. But I think that would be something that we do differently. I think hirings, I mean, people, the answer is always hiring because you have perfect information, knowing who works and who didn't work. But I think thematically, the idea of hiring people that are more creative, more curious, more obsessed with things that are new, and frankly, don't ask them to know as the company continues to grow because they think, ah, I'm good. I'm an expert at blah. And they basically persist at that level and never actually get better. I think hiring, looking for people that grow at the rate of the company is incredibly important. And I think we could have done a much better job with that early on too. So I think, I mean, it's not that much of a stretch to say the two answers relate to talent and customers. But like, I think the subdivision of customer discovery and kinds of hires you would have made would have been probably a different piece of advice. Final question for you, since we're almost up on time here, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Sure. So I think for us, if you think about what we do with continuous security testing, we ask for the privilege of being on top of production security endpoints in order to run continuous tests against those things and help organizations figure out whether those things are secure or insecure, protected or unprotected. If we are successful at that, what we'll end up having in the not so distant future is, you know, one, two, five, ten million production endpoints inside of the ecosystem. At that point, you have probably a representative end size of most modern infrastructure. You have a representative end size of most modern Windows environment cut by OS, you know, containers, Mac environment, maybe some OT systems, hospital beds, et cetera. At that point, what you end up having is what I call national scale intelligence. You end up knowing more about what we'll call it the safety of some of those tools or some of those, you know, environments 
than a lot of other organizations do. And the reason why that matters is cybersecurity exists today in a purely reactive state. What happens? Big thing gets announced. That's the whole scenario I described earlier in the call. And people react to it. And we're trying to kind of close that gap. Well, the way that you actually become proactive in security is to continuously probe and test these devices for all sorts of combinatorics of vulnerabilities and threats to elicit what things are actually protected again or, or not protected before an attack actually happens. So the reason why the company is called Prelude is because if you look up what a Prelude is, there's two definitions. One's around music. There's lots of Easter eggs in our GitHub around music, by the way, if you wanted to look. But the second is, if you look at the definition of Prelude, it's the thing that happens before the real thing, right? Like literally the entire point of the company is actually in the name, which is we want to be able to be able to run these continuous security tests to actually test what happens to your systems before the real attack actually happens, then you can protect yourself against it. So that in combination with the national scale intelligence is basically the, you know, we'll call it three to maybe even 10 year vision of the company. Amazing. I love the vision and I, I love your approach to building and, and bringing this technology to market. We are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if any founder listening in wants to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? I'm terrible at Twitter, so I don't recommend doing that. You'll just find a bunch of random retweets about stuff, which probably relates to a bunch of the books we talked about. I mean, I'm making, my, my LinkedIn's pretty open and they can ping me on there. Obviously, the company has a, a blog and a Discord. They can join the Discord. I mean, they can actually email me too. My, my email's not that hard to figure out. So happy to happy to connect with anybody after the, the podcast as well. Awesome. Spencer, thanks so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and, and share some of your lessons you've learned along the way and, and just some of your perspectives on company building. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I know it's going to be a hit with the audience and really appreciate you taking the time. Me too. Thank you so, so much. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 